Here we go. You know, when, when I was first married, I mean, like, in my first year of marriage, I'm not really convinced that my father, even though I asked my father-in-law if I could marry his oldest daughter, uh, now my wife, I'm not really convinced that he was sure that was a good idea. But he, he consented. And so um, in that first year of marriage, you know, you're trying to figure things out. And then the second year of marriage, it's still trying to, it's kind of crazy. And so I was back at school, married. Lorinda was working in an office downtown. I was going to school. And my father-in-law just came to me one day and he goes, Hey, during spring break, your spring break, I've got a framing job for you out of town about, you're going to have to, you know, be out of town for the week. And you're going to be doing this framing job, and you're going to get paid pretty good money. And I've lined it up with the guys that are framing this house. And so um, I want you to go out there. If you want to, it's a job for you. And I said, sure, that would be great. Yeah, I'll go do that. Now, let me help you understand that spring break uh, in Saskatchewan isn't anything like spring break in any other place on the planet except maybe Siberia. It still got 25 to 40 below zero during our college spring break. And my father-in-law, as loving as he was, got me a framing job while it was somewhere between 30 and 35 below zero. He really loved me. So I went out and I worked with these two brothers. We were framing up this house. And the great thing about working with brothers is you get to hear stories. And these, these aren't just brothers. These are farm brothers. They grew up on a farm in Saskatchewan. And so they had farm brother stories. And so I'm going to share one of those stories with you. And this story is absolutely 100% correct because one of Lorinda's uncles knew these two boys and knew the farm that they grew up on, and I confirmed it with her uncle. So the youngest one, Ernie, had a bad habit of whatever he was doing for his dad, like mowing the lawn with the hand mower or the riding mower or the rototiller or whatever else, what other thing he was using, when he'd go to the gas tank and pull the nozzle off, he wouldn't have the whatever it was that he was filling the gas tank on close enough to where he could stick the nozzle in the hole and fill gas. It was about this far away, and so he's trying to shoot the gas into the gas tank. This annoyed his father to no end, and he finally told his son, he says, don't you ever do that again. I am tired of seeing a puddle of gas from you spilling it all over the ground. I don't want any more gas on the ground. Don't be lazy. Get whatever it is up and get the nozzle into the tank and fill it. And he's going like, okay. And Ernie agreed that he would do that. He would obey his father and his father's wishes. So he was doing pretty good in the spring of that year of, of getting things close and filling it up. But he was in a hurry one day on the riding lawnmower because he couldn't go out and do fun stuff till he got the big yard mowed around the farm. And so he pulled the mower up, turned it off, got out and grabbed the thing, and it was too short. And so he did the old looking around, see if anybody was watching, and he was trying to fill it. And, of course, what did he do? He spilled gas all over the ground. And he didn't want his dad riding his back about it. So he thought to himself, being 16 and smart as a whip, he went in the house and came out with a box of matches. And he says, I am just going to burn that gas off the ground and my dad will never know. You got it. So he lit a match, threw it on there, 
And then all of a sudden he realized that gravel was burning. And that gravel was burning and it started making its way right towards the gas tank and the diesel tank. So he ran and grabbed the shovel and he picked up more gravel and threw on the gravel that was burning, but all it did was make the gravel burn even more. What he didn't realize was that there was years of spilled diesel and gasoline and oil that had soaked into the ground, and all that flame went right to the diesel tank, and it went up the diesel tank, and it caught the gas tank on fire. The gas tank caught on fire, and it blew up, and it blew the diesel all over the chicken coop and then onto the barn, and the chickens didn't make it out. He was able, with his brother and his mom's help, to get the cows and the horses out of the barn. The pigs, however, got roasted. The barn burned to the ground. Now, Ernie's dad plowing a field, and he looks, turns around, and he turns back around. He sees this dark flume of black smoke coming up from his house, and he's going, Huh, I wonder what happened up at the house. Can you imagine that? Put yourself into Ernie's shoes. What do you think dad's going to do when he comes home? This is a part of the story that really amazed me. Is Ernie's dad drove up in the farm truck, got out, looked at the burning barn, and knowing that pigs had been burned up, chicken fried chicken burned up, I mean, it was a disaster of disasters. And he looked at Ernie and he reached in, pulled out his wallet, gave him 40 bucks, told him to drive into town and pick up burgers and fries and drinks for the family and uh, come back home. And you know what? His dad never said another word about it. That's all he did. And, but Ernie told me, he said, it was the look that my dad gave me of high disappointment in what I had done in not obeying what he asked me to do. There, he, he didn't ground me. He didn't fire me. He didn't do anything. He didn't make me pay it back. He just looked at me with that, the look of, why couldn't you just obey what I asked you to do? Ernie told me that from that point on, he realized that when his dad was giving him instructions on what to do and what not to do, that he would obey his dad on every one of those things because he knew that his dad was giving him instruction for life. That what he was telling, the, the, the things that he was talking to him about weren't just things that irritated his dad, but were things that were going to help him to grow to become a man of God. So he listened and he learned and he obeyed. Not all the time did he do it like he should. He admitted that. But it really caught his attention what it meant to obey because his dad had wisdom to give to him. Now, we live life and God has given us a lot of instruction on life, on how to live life, the best way to live life, the things that are going to help us to be successful at living life according to how God says success is. He, he's given us uh, his word. And I mean, if you just spent the rest of your life just reading the Proverbs, you'd have more wisdom 
stuffed in your brain that you'd know what to do with. And you would live a life pleasing to the Lord. But a lot of times what happens is that we, we hear what the Bible has to say. We take a look at what the Word of God has to say. And we start treating it like it's a list of do's and don'ts. Of things we're supposed to do and things we can't do. And so we start checking off the box on all the things that we're supposed to do or the things that we can't do. But yet, when, when we come to the, the understanding that we've been called by God, our Father, He calls us His kids. He calls us by name. He wants us to live a, a life that reflects who He is. And that means that we live a life of holiness. And, and, and so sometimes what we think about is in holiness is that we've got to check off all these things that we have to do in order to be holy people. Like, you know, don't swear, don't tell lies, don't cheat, be nice to your mom and dad, uh, don't steal. We have a list of things that we check off that we think will make us holy. But that's not the definition of holy. Remember what the definition of holiness is? Holiness is being set apart, being uncommon, being in a place to where we're usable for God's sake. That's what, what it means to be holy. So really what God's saying is if you're going to be holy, what I want you to do is, is, is don't be like the rest of the world because they're just common. They're just average. I want you to set yourself aside for me so that you're going to listen to what I have to say so that you know what it looks like to be live a holy life. That's why Jesus is our example on what it means to be holy and to live a holy life. Um, over the past few weeks, we've talked about what it looks like to step into living a life of holiness. And so we talked about the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we, we hit each one of those. And two of those are talking about loving God, worshiping God passionately. And the other two are talking about doing it practically. So if I were to take Jesus' words, Jesus said that he's looking for worshipers who worship in spirit passionately and in truth practically. It's not one or the other, it's both and. Spirit and truth is what Jesus is looking for, for worshipers, for people who are going to follow him, who are going to emulate who he is as a holy God. So we follow Jesus because he lives a life of holiness and that's what he's calling us to do. And so what we do is we want us to, God wants us to step into that. But sometimes, here's how I think many of us view our relationship with God. And maybe even we view it in our, our pursuit of holiness. We really believe if I give God my time on Sunday, this time right here, and I make a contribution financially to the church, and I take a couple days in the year and give my service to make the church look better, and I get involved in some kind of ministry, worship or kids' ministry or drinking coffee, that is a ministry, um, maybe attending a small group, that I've really given myself over for the kingdom of God now because I've done all of these things. I've made some sacrifices in my life to get to know God better. 
And what more could God want from me? After all, of all the people that I know, I'm one of the most committed Christ followers there is. So that's probably all that I really need to look at, right? And that's all that really counts is doing something like that. That's what it is, right? That's what God wants, right? No, there's more. There's something else that God's talking about. And a lot of times what we're doing is we're doing the right things with the wrong incentive, kind of like my friend Ernie. His idea of burning the gas off the ground was, the incentive behind it was he didn't want his dad to know that he spilled gas. But the end result was disastrous. And sometimes that's what happens with us. But God, he he really does, he wants us to meet like this. He wants us to gather together as the family of faith to connect relationally, to connect spiritually, and and to connect emotionally. He wants us to connect with each other. God really does want us to participate in giving our money away because he says where your heart is is where your treasure is, or where your treasure is is where your heart is. And so if your treasure is in your wallet, that's where your, your heart is. But if you're giving it away like God calls you to, he's saying that's where your heart is. Your heart is in giving. He wants us to connect with other sojourners in small groups. He delights when we take time out of our life to serve others. And all those things are really good, but you can be doing all the good things for the wrong reasons and desiring the wrong outcome. The wrong reason is to try and impress God and try and impress other people. The wrong motivation or the wrong outcome is that it's going to make me look good to God and to other people. None of that stuff counts for anything. So we're going to take a look this morning as we talk about holiness because there's another aspect to holiness that we need to entertain in our lives. And part of that comes with this idea of being obedient, to obey God. Now, in the Old Testament... There was a, a, a guy by the name of Samuel. And he was the last judge of Israel. They were going from a theocracy to a mar- mono- Yeah, you know what I'm... Yeah, they're going to a king. <laughs> so anyway, Samuel's job is to anoint the first king of Israel. And so God told him exactly who it was going to be, and it ended up being this guy by the name of Saul, who was from the tribe of Benjamin. And God told Samuel to anoint Saul, and so he anointed Saul. Saul became the king. And then Samuel's part of Samuel's job or uh, place in Saul's life was he was kind of the mouthpiece for God speaking to Saul on what God wanted him to do. And there's one portion in this in in the story of Samuel and Saul around chapter 13 to 15 in, in that general area. The story comes out where God calls Saul through the prophet Samuel to go and utterly and completely destroy the Amalekites. 
They're, Saul is supposed to gather his army. And he is supposed to go to the Amalekites. And he is supposed to absolutely kill every man, woman, child, and infant. He is supposed to destroy every sheep, goat, cow, ox, and camel, donkey. Nothing survives. Nothing is taken. It's all absolutely 100% destroyed and annihilated. That's what God says. Now, we're sitting here today and we're going like, you know, the God of the Old Testament was kind of a mean dude. He wasn't... How could he... How could God kill children after all? I mean, we would say that's wrong. How many of you think that's wrong? God's killing children. Okay. Well, that's why God's God and you're not. Let me just get that right out there right at the beginning. Now, the Amalekites, let me just give you a little backstory on this. When Israel was coming out of Egypt and they were like running for their lives, the Amalekites attacked them. They were defenseless. And they brought all this pain and misery. And God made a promise to Moses and to the children of Israel that the Amalekites were going to pay for their disobedience to God. Now, the Amalekites were also the kind of people that um, if you think that God destroying their children is bad, they're the kind of people that would take their infants and sacrifice them to God. They would take these little babies that we have over here in the nursery... And they would burn them to death or they'd cut them up and spill their blood everywhere. They'd chop them up into little pieces. They would do all of that under the guise of worshiping their God. And the, and, and the reason why God's calling for the Amalekites to be absolutely 100% destroyed is because if you leave a little bit of yeast in the batch of dough, what does it do? Yeah, it spreads and it ruins the whole batch of dough. And so God's saying that little bit of Of sin, if you leave any of the Amalekites alive, they're going to try and get retribution. And over time, they will grow back and they will come back to destroy Israel. That would be their plot because that's what always happens. And so God said to Saul, annihilate them all. I promised that was going to happen. I'm going to fulfill that promise right now. And so Saul gathers his army. He goes down to the Amalekites and he just annihilates and he kills everybody. And everything is just great. And then here comes Samuel. He shows up and he's talking to Saul. And he says this, And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go uh, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites. Fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you... Pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in in the sight of the Lord. And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission to which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agah, the king of uh, Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took the spoils, the sheep, the oxen, oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. So really what happened is is that, uh, that Saul did go in 
and he annihilated everybody except for the king. He brought him back kind of as his trophy. They kept a lot of gold and silver and things like that. And the people, the guys in the army did. They plundered the spoils. And they kept the best of the sheep and the oxen because they're going to sacrifice this to the Lord. And Samuel's going like, no, that's not what God said. That is not what God said. See, here's what God said. God said, destroy everything. 100% destroy everything. And what did Saul do? He destroyed 90% of everything. And even destroying 90% of everything, he was still disobedient to God. Do you see what Saul does here in this thing? On that 10% of disobedience, he turned it back on the people who were with him. He's, he's going, well, I did bring the king. That's true. But the people, it's the people. They're the ones that wanted to have all this stuff brought back. And they really want, they have, their intentions were really good because they want to make a sacrifice to God. Isn't that a great thing? Samuel and Samuel's going, no, that's a stupid thing. That's a really stupid thing. Because here's what Samuel says in verse, in verses 22, he says, Samuel said, has the Lord as, as great delight in burnt, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. The answer clearly is no. The Lord delights more in obedience than in the performance of worship. You get that? All the things that you do here on a Sunday morning together as we come and we prepare our hearts, right? On Saturday night we're preparing our hearts, right? Everybody go right, Pastor Ken. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Except for you guys that were at Beer Fest. That's okay. That's all right. You might have been preparing your heart at Beer Fest. I'm okay with that. And we come in here, and through our week, God has been poking us quite annoyingly because God is annoying. It's a holy annoyance in our lives. And he's poking us in an area of obedience. And we're refusing to obey God. And then we come in here together. And we love being together, don't we? We love each other. You people in the front, you love the backseat people, don't you? Okay, good, good. You would invite them to come and sit in the front with you, wouldn't you? Awesome. All right. The invitation is open. You can move at any time. And now you're worshiping God and that whole thing on obedience that God's been calling you to, He's still poking you on it even as you're worshiping. He's saying, you need to deal with this issue in your life. You need to deal and be obedient to me on this thing. And you're going, praise Jesus. Now you know why I don't sing. Anyway, <laughs> you, you're, you're into worship and and God is saying that your performance of worship is worthless because you haven't obeyed on this little thing. 
It's a big deal. Let's go back to Samuel. Here's what he does. He goes out and he meets Saul. Saul says, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the command of the Lord. And Saul asks, What's the sound of the bleeding sheep and the lowing oxen? Mean, Saul, if you've really destroyed everything that God said to. See, and Paul does it. I mean, Saul does it. He blames the people. He takes, he's the king of Israel. God has anointed him to be the leader. Guess what? If the leader is messing up, the people are going to mess up. If the king, if, if the king isn't obeying God, the people won't obey God. So how does that transfer to you? If you're not, if you're the, the rightful head of your household, if you're married, if you're a man and you're married, put up your hand. If you're a man and you have been married, keep your hands up, put up your hand. If you're a man that wants to get married someday, put up your hand. You are the rightful head of your household. God has called you to lead in your household. And so if you want your family to obey God and to live in the holiness of God, then you have to model that holiness for them. Remember the old saying, more is caught than taught? You can talk all you want. Because if your talk doesn't match up with your walk, it doesn't mean anything to anybody in your house because they're going to go like, yeah, nice dad, good job. And they're going to blow you off and you're going to wonder, how in the world did I ever get such rebellious kids? Well, duh. Go look in the mirror. Listen, if you're having problems figuring that out, come and see me. i got time in my office. I'll help you understand why they're idiots. Because when dad's an idiot, the kids are idiots. I'm just speaking from experience. Why do I keep looking at you? Ah... Now, here's, here's five things, reasons that in this story of, of Saul that I really think why God hates disobedience. But he takes pleasure in obedience. So I'm going to go through them real fast. I'm just going to zip through them. So if you're taking notes, forget it. Okay, number one, disobedient. And, and this is from least devastating to most devastating in your relationship with God. Disobedience shows misplaced fear. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, because when he finally came to the place where he was willing to admit that he sinned, he said, I have sinned, for I have transgressed and committed the, com- the commandment of the Lord your, uh, and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. You see, the king was more afraid of the people. The leader that God had put into that position was more afraid of what the people had to say than of the 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 punishment God would bring for disobedience. We see it every day, don't we? The guy that's in Washington, D.C. right now and the last guy that was in Washington, D.C. and all the guys before that, all 40, whatever it is, six? Something like that, yeah. I think there were a couple assassinated I added in there. I'm just kidding. All those guys were placed there by God for them to rule this nation. 
as God called them to do it. But they were cowards and refused to obey God because they wanted to hear the voice of man, so they obeyed the voice of man rather than the voice of God. And that's why our nation is no longer a Christian nation. That is why this nation is going to start persecuting people who are Christ followers. Because our leaders failed to be obedient to God. Misplaced fear. Number two, disobedience shows misplaced pleasure. Because after, after Saul had uh, annihilated most of the Amalekites, as he went up onto uh, Carmel, he set up um, uh, a statue or a place to honor himself. He was honoring himself for the victory. His mis- misplaced pleasure was on himself. Look what I have done. Instead of giving God the glory, he couldn't give God the glory because he didn't do what God said, so he gave himself the glory. Disobedience shows misplaced pleasure. Disobedience shows misplaced praise. He, he was giving the praise in the, in the wrong spot. And disobedience is the, as the sin of divination. It says that right in, in verse 23. For rebellion is as the sin of divination. And presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Or let me give it to you this way. Rebellion is, a, is as sinful as witchcraft. And stubbornness is bad as worshiping idols. Now, what does that all mean? Why is rebellion and disobedience as sin of divination? Divination is seeking to know what to do in a way that ignores the words of God or the counsel of God. It means that it, it, what it is is exactly what disobedience is based on. God says one thing and we say, I think that I will consult myself or maybe the internet to find the answer that I like better than what God's giving to me. And so we insult God because we think we have wisdom when what we have is nothing. And God has given the wisdom. And so we, in our disobedience, we put, of God's word, it puts my wisdom in the place of God's, and thus it insults God as the only sure and reliable source of wisdom. Disobedience is idolatry. That's the second half of that 23rd verse. For rebellion is the sin of divination or witchcraft, and stubbornness is as bad as worshiping idols. When God says one thing, and we consult the little wizard of our own wisdom, and then stubbornly choose to go our own way, we are idolaters. And we have chosen not only to consult ourselves, but to make the alternative worship about ourselves. We're worshiping ourselves instead of God. See, this is where it all comes together for us. It stands to reason that God would be displeased with disobedience because at every point it's an attack on His glory and His holiness. And that's why He calls us to live as holy men and women. That we would be special, chosen, set apart, uncommon, and belonging to God. That's 
what he had for Saul. Now listen, here's the craziest thing. That if Saul would have obeyed God on this one thing, the kingship would have stayed in his family forever. But because he disobeyed God, God says, I am now taking my hand of favor off of you and you will, you are the one and only king from your family and I am going to appoint a man after my own heart to be the next king. And that man really was a boy. It's King David and he was 13 years old when he was anointed king. And it took 30 years before he actually became the king. And because of David's obedience, not complete obedience, but he he loved God with all of his heart. Yeah, he messed up. He committed adultery. But because of David's desire and repentance, because of his heart after God, generation after generation after generation, and the next thing you know, out of his lineage, out of his family tree, comes the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Here's the, here's the great thing is Jesus understood the importance of obedience. You remember what he's, I mean, we talked, we've talked a lot about this, about who Jesus is, what Jesus does, how Jesus responds. And Jesus said, I only say, speak, what my Father in heaven tells me to speak. I only do what I see my Father doing. In other words, he's, he's saying, I'm in complete obedience to my Father in heaven and I will only do what he commands me to do. Matter of fact, in Philippians, it tells us that um, Jesus became obedient even to the point of death. Even to the, Would you obey God even to the point of death? Would you do that? Jesus modeled that for us. I'm going to tell you right now that we have thousands and thousands of Christ-following believers around the world who are obedient to Christ even to the point of death. There have been more Christians killed in the last year than there were in the previous 20, 20 centuries. More Christians martyred in one year than there were in the 20 centuries prior to that. You just never hear about it. Nobody wants to talk about it. But they, were, they are obedient even to the point of death. Here's what Jesus said in John chapter 14. He, he was talking to Judas who asked him a question. And here's what he said. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home with him. Now... I want you to see that Jesus is making this a conditional statement. He says, if. If. There's a condition then. What's the condition? He says, if anyone loves me, he will keep, obey, submit, observe, conform, and follow my word. If you love me, that's what you'll do with God's word. And then... If you do that, the end result is that we know that the, we will know the love of the Father. We will have the abiding, manifest presence of Jesus in our lives. 
The manifest presence of Jesus. Now listen, that's totally different than the omnipresence presence of Jesus. Because the omnipresence of Jesus is right here, right now. The omnipresence of Jesus was at Brewfest last night. Omnipresence of Jesus was at your home, is still at your home. The omnipresence of Jesus is down at the rivers. People are watching the floodwaters. The omnipresence of Jesus is everywhere. It's in every building. It's in every church. It is everywhere. But what we are looking for and what Jesus is telling us that if you want to have the, to encounter the manifest presence of Jesus in your life, you have to obey his words. Some of you are just settling for the omnipresence of Christ. You're saying that's good enough for me. Omnipresence is good. I mean, we all like like the omnipresence of Christ. He's with us as we're driving down the highway. I love the omnipresence of Jesus watching over me as I drive. But I'm I'm tired of just having the omnipresence of Jesus. I mean, it's not that that's a, I don't want it to disappear because that means, well, maybe I do want it to disappear because that will disappear when Christ comes back. The omnipresence of God will leave this planet when Christ comes back. But in the meantime, for, the, for Christ followers, we should be wanting the encounter of the manifest presence of Christ. That's what, what he said Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, obeys them, he it is who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Do you know the manifest presence of Christ in your life? Do you know what that looks like? Do you know what that feels like? Do you know what that smells like? Do you know what that tastes like? Taste and see that the Lord is good. Jesus is called the Rose of Sharon. Is he not? So that means that he must smell like something good. He doesn't smell like a barnyard. He smells like a flower. A Rose of Sharon. Far too many people are, are just... They're going for the lesser presence of Jesus. Here's the key to encountering the manifest presence of Jesus. To know and keep or obey the commandments that Jesus has given. To obey the commands that Jesus has given. Now, you're probably going like, that would be really great if I knew them. Right? How many of the commands do you know of Jesus? Write them down right now. Just take, take a moment. Oh, never mind. I'm going to help you out. Get ready. Get your pen and paper ready because I'm going to give you the commands of Jesus. So get ready to write. This is really important. Never mind. Don't write it down. Memorize it. Love God. Love your neighbor. You got it? Number one is what? Say it again. Number two is what? Okay, you guys are A students. I'm going to give you A's. All you get an A. You can all go home and tell whoever cares that you got an A at church today. (laughs) 
Love God and love others. That sums up all the laws of the prophets and the commandments. Love God, love others. Love God, love others. So what does that look like? I mean, we talk about this stuff all the time, but does it make a difference in the way we live our lives? Because we know what we're supposed to do. The question is, how do we do it? Well, I'm going to help you out this morning. Um, Ephesians 6, 5 through 8 says, Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ. Do the will of God from the heart, rendering the service with a good will as to the Lord, not to man. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant or is Free. So you're going like, I'm not a bond servant, and I don't know what it means to be free because I think I live in a country where freedom is already given because I was born here. Let me help you understand this. What it's talking about for us today is if you have a job and you answer to somebody in that job, that is who you who is you're a bond servant to. You have an employer, you are an employee. That is what this is talking about when you when you bring it to to our time right now. So, what, the, what God is calling us to do is to obey your earthly masters. Obey the person who has authority over you. And some of you are going like, I, nobody has authority over me. I run my own business. I'm my own boss. And I'm going to tell you, you do have someone who has authority over you. Because God says, if you come to this church, He is going to place elders and leaders who have authority over you, and you need to respect and obey those guys. And so, since I'm one of those guys that God has put in authority over your life, hear me when I say this, and obey these words. These are the words I'm saying to you today that you need to obey. Love God and love your neighbor. You need to go to work tomorrow. And you need to be the best employee that you can possibly be to the person that you work for. They need to get more from you than what they're paying you to do. Because if they get less from you than what they're paying you to do, you're stealing. You're stealing. You're not obeying God. You'll not see the manifest presence of Christ. You need to step into it and give your time, your energy and effort, put everything you can into it because you're not doing it for them. You're doing it for God. And the great thing is what it says here is that you will receive back from the Lord what you put into it. Some of you are going like, why did I come to church today? He's just being mean again. Well, here's one of the reasons why we have a hard time dealing with this stuff and doing what God calls us to do. Romans 8, 7 says, The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Have you ever asked yourself why you struggle obeying God? Have you ever asked yourself why it's so hard for you to do what God is calling you to do? It's because you still have a 
uh, a heart and a mind that is set on the flesh, not the spirit. So in 2 Corinthians, here's how we deal with all this stuff. In 2 Corinthians, it says, we destroy arguments in every lofty Opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. In other words, what we're going to do is that when we start to think contrary to God's word in relationship to loving God and loving others, in relationship to living a holy life, in relationship to when God's calling us to step in obedience and we don't want to, that's our flesh fighting against the Spirit of God, and we are being stubborn, and God calls us not to be stubborn about that. And so what we're going to do is we're going to take that thought captive, and we're going to make it obedient to Christ. Because the thought has to be captive and obedient to Christ before the body can be obedient to Christ. Romans 12.2 Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. If your mind isn't transformed, if it isn't renewed in God, you will never be obedient to God. You will continue to walk in disobedience to God and you're going to wonder why isn't there more to living a life with Christ. It just seems to be the same thing every day, every week because we haven't stepped into and experienced the manifest presence of Jesus in our lives. So, what it means to be obedient to God is it means God is praiseworthy and reliable. It guarantees the spread of God's glory. It shows that God's grace is a, a glorious power. It says that God's commandments are not too hard. Everything God commands us is for our good. The obedience to God is, is God's love. And that obedience is found in faith. Or trust. We trust what God says to be true. Therefore, we will obey it because it is going to be for our best, for our benefit, and for God's glory. For God's glory and our good. Amen? The issue at hand is not that we don't obey God on the big issues because we do. I don't really, I don't know all of you all that well, but I'm pretty sure nobody's murdered anybody in here. Right? You know, a little affirmation helps me feel a little bit better. Any bank robbers? I won't go on to any list any more sense because, you know, I don't want people to start getting embarrassed or anything. But we obey God on big things. It's easy. And God's saying it's that little thing that we're disobedient on that's the big deal. Because as soon as we disobey God on this little issue right here, then we're going to disobey on that little issue right there. Then we're going to disobey on that little issue right there. And then we're going to disobey over here. And we're going to disobey over here. And when we take a look back at our life, we've got a string of disobedience to God. And God says to us that he would... And what we try to do is we try to make it all better by giving God something. Our time, our energy, our effort, our money... That's our sacrifice. And so we go, oh, look, I just gave that to God. That makes us all good. And God's going, nope, I don't want your money. I don't want your time. I want your heart. I want your heart. That's what it boils down to is your heart issue. Is your heart in obedience, in compliance with God. 
So whatever it is, give it up to Jesus. Let it go. Repent from it. And then know the manifest presence of Jesus. Amen? Now here's the great news is that um, we're going to go right here to this. John's going to come and lead us into celebrating what Christ has done because this is really, this represents the obedience of Jesus to the Father. I'm not praying. John, come. He's going to lead us. The Spirit's going to move us. And we're going to do what God calls us to do.